Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would open our hearts this morning to your word. Lord, that you would do something in us, O God, as we offer up this gift of worship to you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can all be seated. Uh, as you may remember from last week, we did uh, Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2, where we looked at uh, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Uh, that is a, not a discordant uh, noise. This is a beautiful sound that we offer up uh, to our God. And we do it as a body, as the body of Christ, and to the whole world. And we invite the entire world to come and sing with us, to come and know this God that we worship. We looked at we serve the Lord with gladness. We serve Him and we serve others. We serve the body. We serve each other with gladness, joyfully. And then lastly, we are to come into His presence singing joyfully. Now I want you to turn now to the book of Acts very briefly. Uh, I should have consulted my cohort, Logan, in this, in this deal, uh, because he is our history person. So I'm going to give you a little, bit of a, a little bit of a lesson from uh, the Dummies book on this, on this particular group of people that we're talking about this morning. They're in Acts chapter 17. And I think it's this story of, Paul's in, of Paul in Athens. I think it's a great way to introduce our text. So as we look at chapter 17, let's real briefly read through uh, verses 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world in, in, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and one end of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, Greece was, a, was the home of philosophers and philosophy. 
Uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, a bunch of other ones. Uh, that's where they all kind of came from. Now, we asked the question, who were the Areopagus? The name Areopagus is the name of a hill near the Acropolis in Athens. It also goes by the name of Mars Hill. And it was also the name of a council of Athenian leaders who met there. Originally, this council uh, who would advise the kings uh, of Athens, uh, they eventually lost their influence by around the end of 5 BC, but they held on to some judicial authority. In the first century, AD, they had control over all those who wanted to lecture and teach there in Athens. Now, what about those mentioned by the name of the Epicureans? Uh, who were they? Uh, it, it was a Greek philosophy, a philosophic school named after Epicurus, uh, whose teachings they ascribed to. Essentially, uh, in many ways, they were atheists, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die kind of attitude. And here are some of the things that they taught. They said the goal of human existence was finding happiness, which he said was pleasure. And this pleasure had like a broad definition. Pleasure was the absence of pain in the body and trouble of the soul. Intellectual pleasures were more superior than sensual pleasures. Overindulgence and fleshly pleasures, though, would result in pain. So a, a golden mean of balance in life where excesses were avoided by, by means of uh, reason, discrimination, and contentment. And contentment was found in limiting of the desires and, a, and a securing a peace that could be maintained in all circumstances. Only matter, which atoms, and space, void, really existed eternally. And the universe had been created through motion, resulting in the fact that all life ends with the dissolution of the body. And lastly, immortal gods uh, who may have existed were of a finer material nature, and they lived in a state of complete tranquility and indifference to this world. Now, just hang in there with me, just, just, just a couple minutes more. Like I said, this is, this is Epicurean and, and Stoics and Areopagus for dummies. What about the Stoics? Who were they? Well, the Stoics were people who held to the doctrines propounded by Zeno uh, somewhere around 335, 263 B.C. Pantheists, everything is God. At the time of the first century, they had become only concerned with moral conduct. And a couple of things here to help you understand them. Their God was a pantheistic divine fire. Individuals had a, had a spark of this divine fire, which after death would return back to that divine fire. Human beings, they, well, they need to discover the natural order of things in the universe and learn to live within that order. Upon birth, each person must do what is necessary to fit into, into that place from which they were assigned. Thereby, they're cooperating with the divine reason, which is also called the Logos, that orders all things in the universe. Gods were interpreted simply as allegorically. And everyone's thinking right now, what in the world is all that about? How does that even remotely fit in with Psalm 100? Why do we need to know that? These were the people that Paul is witnessing to in Acts chapter 17. This is who he's talking to. This is the mindset of these men. These are learned men. They're intellectuals. They're smart. They're philosophers. When we look in 17, chapter, in chapter 17, and we look in verse 21, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. So these aren't just people that, that pick up, you know, the comics on Sunday morning and figure they're going to, you know, know their theology and their doctrine from it. These are smart men. And, and we touched on it briefly throughout that whole time. And, and we have to look at it again and apply it to our, to our text. Paul points out one particular thing that I want to call your attention to in verse 23. He says, For as I passed along... And observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In all their worship, or, or lack of worship, there was this unknown God that some worshipped, or at least recognized maybe. That God, he very, Paul very methodically points out to them. He lets them know who this God is. It was the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians. They didn't even know him. They didn't even know his name. So how could they even begin to worship aright? How could they experience true worship if they didn't even know who the true God was? And Paul gives those present these reasons to worship his God, the Christian God, and his son Jesus Christ, the one and only Redeemer. He, you know, he, he looks at it and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples, nor is he served by human hands. Himself gives all to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind, having determined allotted periods and boundaries. He is actually not far from us, being then God's offspring. He's pointing out all these theological matters to them about the true God. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He says, the judge of the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he said that this man was raised from the dead. See, Paul knew, the Christians knew this one true God that they needed to, to aim all their worship at. And though with all their intellect, with all their learning... They had missed the one true God and the worship that he alone is worthy of. And listen, this is a mistake we cannot afford to make. And yet, dare I suggest that even in many churches today, they gather and for many people, they worship an unknown God. They do not know him. There can be singing, and there can be preaching, there can be reading of the, of the Word, there can be fellowship, there can be all these churchy kind of things, and yet He is still truly unknown among many of them, in many ways. And this prelude to worship that we started last week at the very beginning, this, this prelude to worship, we must know our God. We must know who we worship, why we worship him. If we don't know those things, we're just speaking words out into the atmosphere. They're not doing anything. It's not changing our hearts. It's not giving glory to God. So this morning, I want to point out three things in verse 3. That's going to be our text for this morning. Psalm 100, verse 3. First thing, we worship the one true God. We worship the one true God. The second thing, we worship the one true creator. We worship the one true creator. And then lastly, we worship the one true shepherd. <clears throat> so as we start, we worship the one true God. Our text says in verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. Now, now, in this, you'll see there's two words here in the Hebrew that are, that are used, Lord and God. And I want to point out uh, just two things. Lord, or Jehovah, is that Hebrew word. Uh, Jehovah is that Hebrew word. Self-existent one, the I Am. God, Elohim, the all-powerful one, the Creator. And I think this makes a lot of sense as we look through all of Psalm 100, that we're, that we're addressing that same God with two different names, two different titles. It's important to understand that. It helps bring more understanding as to who we worship. The, the self-existent one, the creator, the all-powerful and that's all God. In this prelude to worship, we are currently in, as the beginning, as we are beginning to introduce this main theme, here and now, is it, uh, that which we are preparing for in eternity. I believe we must understand three things about our God that we worship. There's, there's many things, but there are three things I'm going, we have to know these things if we're going to worship God aright. The first one is our God is a triune God. 
Boy, that's stepping into a bunch of rabbit holes and go all over the place. Now, I don't know if you all saw this. It's on the thing back there. There is a handout back there, the Athanasian Creed. Did you all, did you all get one of those? Go ahead, if, Seth, if you can pass uh, some of those out. There's about 30 of them. You might have to share uh, with your neighbor. So, as we worship this one God, as this prelude to worship begins here and now, and we're getting ready for that eternal worship that, is, that awaits us, we must know the triune God. And this is not for discussion or debate. I'm just going to tell you that. This, this is one of those things that we will hold to and stand firm on. Many would say that, oh, well, listen, the word Trinity is not found anywhere in the in, in biblical text. To which I would say, you're right, it doesn't. The word is not there, but the doctrine clearly is. I will just share with you two things about the Trinity. One is the definition uh, of what the Trinity is by Dr. James White from his book, The Forgotten Trinity. He says, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, I can't find a definition that really hits the mark as well as that one. Within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal, co-eternal persons, na namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is an orthodox definition, I believe. It is always going to be shrouded in mystery and, and to a certain amount <clears throat> to all of us, though. We're never going to be able to wrap our brains around that. We're, never, we're going to struggle to comprehend that for all eternity. But let me give you <coughs> one more thing. That paper that you just got, the Athanasian Creed, written around the 4th century most likely. This was a defense against Arianism and their denial of the Trinity. Read through it with me. Whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Oh, don't freak out on me now. That word Catholic means universal faith. Don't freak out again. It's not one world church kind of stuff. It's the universal faith that we all have as the body of Christ. Which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal such as the father is such as the son and such as the holy spirit the father uncreated the son uncreated and the holy spirit uncreated the father incomprehensible the son incomprehensible the holy spirit incomprehensible the father eternal the son eternal the holy spirit eternal and yet they are not three eternals but one eternal do you see it I'm only going to go that far. I want you to take this. This needs to be in your Bible so the next time somebody tries to open up that debate with you, you just say, look, this is what the Trinity is. This is Orthodox Christianity. Listen, we must worship the triune God. All the persons in the Godhead worshiped in all honor and glory. All persons having the exact same attributes. All worthy of our undivided praise. Look at creation. The Father willed it or predestined it, predetermined it. And the Son spoke creation into existence by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at the Trinity and the redemption of man. The Father elects. The Son redeems. The Holy Spirit regenerates. <clears throat> Psalm 96 verse 9 says... Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Oh, when we understand or we catch a glimpse of the truth of the Trinity, oh, how that comes to life for us. The splendor of his holiness, that the whole earth would tremble. Do we worship? When we came in here this morning in this prelude to worship, did we worship the one God in this light, in his Trinitarian nature? <clears throat> Second, we worship the one true God. Because we hold to the Trinitarian doctrine, Christians are often accused of being pantheistic, worshiping many gods by some of the cults and other religions. 
You tell people you're a Christian, <coughs> excuse me, and worship the one true God, and buddy, hold on, because it's about to move up a couple notches real fast. When you say, no, 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 I worship the one true God, hold on, because it's fixing to get ugly in some places. You will hear, oh, listen, there is no God. Or they say, there is no God but Allah. Or they say, there are multiple gods. They might say, well, listen, you are God. Science is God. Nature is God. Sun, moon, and stars are gods. God is whatever you want he, she, or it to be. But the Bible tells us something differently, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Look at these verses that we have. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 35 through 39. Or 35 and 39. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. There's one true God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 1 Timothy, we all want to get the whole council of Scripture here. Let's go to the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 17, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, or, second, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Lastly, Jude 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Some people go, why do you got to throw out all those verses? Boy, there was a lot more. When you hear it enough, you start believing what, you, what you're seeing on the pages of Scripture. I believe this is a beautiful example of solid expository apologetics, Scripture confirming other Scripture, the whole counsel of God. I'm not here trying to convince the world that there is one true God. I'm just stressing the fact that this God, the only true God, is the one that we are called to worship. It's the God that we see right there in Psalm 100 where it says, uh, know that the Lord, He is God. How important it is uh, to set aside anything that becomes an idol, a God to us. It gets in the way of worship. We're called to worship this triune, holy God alone, not everything else. And lastly, we worship this triune God. As we worship this triune God, we must acknowledge His attributes. As we worship Him, how could we even begin to worship God, gathering all the brothers and sisters in Christ and in the, in the world, and making a joyful noise, and serving Him joyfully, and others, and joyfully singing, if it were not for the character of the God of the universe? How do we begin to worship 
This God that we don't even know anything about his character or who he is. When we worship, do we remember that our God is supreme? He's sovereign. He's holy. He's immutable. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He's faithful, good, kind, filled of great, filled with grace and love and mercy, just and wrathful, eternal, infinite, transcendent, solitary. Is that the God that we are going before to worship? Imagine worship, imagine this for just a minute, worship that looked at and praised God for who he is in his very essence. If we truly grasp the attributes of God, it would put us on our faces as we worship. How much glory and honor it would bring him how how we would be enraptured and lifted up from the from the dung and the mire that this world tries to sink us in if we worship this god in all his character this worship is acceptable before him this worship is glorifying to him this worship exalts him this is the type of worship that you can bring before an all-consuming fire now ask yourself this, am I worshiping the one true God? When I walk in here on Sunday in this prelude to worship that, that we are pouring forth from our hearts right here, right now, today, before we enter into glory, am I worshiping that one true God? Am I worshiping the triune God? Am I worshiping the God who is not just exhibiting his attributes, but those very attributes are his essence and who he, it's who he is. The only way to worship is to worship this God and this God alone. How dare we gather to make a joyful noise, to worship joyfully uh, in our acts of service or singing joy joyfully if there is another God that has a place in our hearts. There is only room for one God in our hearts. He demands all of us, everything of us. And listen, if this prelude, uh, that we are, if we are introducing the main theme of our eternal worship, it must have our God at the very center at all times. There's an old hymn, holy, 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 that I believe captures this very idea clearly. The last stanza of that, of that hymn says, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thee. Praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Let our worship be the one true God alone. With all of our body, with all of our soul, and with all of our spirit. The second point is this. We worship one creator the one true god that we worship is also the very creator of all things listen to the words of sinclair ferguson he says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth when these words were first written they presented a challenge to all religions of the world they made a claim for the god of israel the god of the bible he alone is God. He alone is creator. Ever since they have challenged the philosophies and worldviews of mankind and continue to to this day. They affirm without reservation that the universe in which we live is not an accident, not the chance result of nature or evolution. It is the handiwork of God. It's it's impossible for us to worship the one true God and yet deny that he is the creator. Remember again, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It reads as though it, it, it is common knowledge. And all through the Bible, scripture after scripture after scripture affirms there is one God and he is the sole creator. He alone. Our text says, it is he who made us, and we are his. Turn over just a couple chapters to chapter 139, and verse 13 through 16. 
139, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Oh, listen. Worship should pour forth ever so quickly from our lips unto our God because he created each one of us. What you see sitting there in the pew today, when you look down and you look at yourself, that is no mistake. He created you in the depths of the womb. God did that. Think about this, what the psalm proclaims. He formed us in, in the inward parts. He knitted us together. He fearfully and wonderfully created, created us. He intricately wove us together. He made us in secret. Never have we been hidden from him. He looked upon our unformed substance. Even when none of it was, was there yet, he saw, he knew, he loved and again, we have learned, have we learned to worship him as our creator? How could we kneel down and offer up praise and yet somehow think that he has had little or nothing to do with us being here? Stop and think about God, our creator, for a moment. He created us for his own glory. He created us for himself. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. And listen, that's what makes suicide so horrible. That's what it is. Is you belong to someone else. How dare you take that? He created us not for another. He created us for him. To love and serve and worship him. He made us from nothing. He created, uh, he created us from the dirt of the ground, essentially. When you look at what we're actually made of, it's like, I don't know, it's something ridiculous, like 80% water. The rest of it is just... He did that from nothing. He holds all of this together by the word of his power. If God's power wasn't holding us together right now, every atom in our being would just explode. We would cease to exist. And just as the potter has the right to do what he may with the clay, so does our God whom we worship with each one of us. He created you and I here in this time, in this place. Oh, he is worthy, infinitely worthy of our undivided, passionate worship from the depths of our hearts and our lips right here, right now on this day. He is worthy of that worship. He is the creator. And how could we even think of waiting for another time and another place to worship when we have here and now? We were created to be more than just a bag of blood and bones and brains. We were created for worship, worship of the living God. He created us for that. Think back to what I said earlier about those so-called Epicureans and the Stoics. They missed it. It bounced off their heads. Atoms, that's all we are. And when, and when we die, it just all goes back to dirt. They missed it. We were created by the one true God, created for worship. A God unknown to them is known to us today. The creation of man was the greatest of all his creation, created in his image. Man was the crown of creation. But there was more. Let's look at a couple more verses. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of, of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. 
Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and, and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? John 1, 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Again, why all the verses? Because you've got to know. That that's what the whole council of scripture teaches us. That he is the creator. He is responsible for creation. He has done it. Not one thing that you see came from another source. I don't, and, and listen, this is just me, all right? I don't see any kind of evolution mentioned in the Bible. And I will just be honest about creation. I am a young earth proponent. I think it's biblical. That's what I hold to. But at the end of the day, if this world is flat, if this world is round, if this world is oblong, whatever it is, if God took six days or six years or six billion years to create all that we see, as long as all creation is ascribed to him, I will worship him no matter what. He is God. He is the creator. I know people want to fight about that all day long. It's 10 billion. I don't care if it's 10 billion years old. Did he, did he create it? Well, yes. Then that's all that matters in the, at the end. I wasn't here at creation. I don't know for sure. It is he who designed and created. It is, it is, it is he who designed and created the platypus and the penguin. Why? I don't know. He's God. He created the bird and the buffalo, the snake and the centipede, the roach and the raccoon. That's his creation. He did it. You name it, he created it. The cedars of Lebanon, the redwoods of California, Confederate jasmine, wild roses. God did that. Nothing else. Nobody else. God did it. Potatoes, cabbage, corn, eggplant, broccoli, whatever it is. God's creation. And he sustains every bit of it. Colossians 1.17. And he owns it all. Psalm 50, verses 10 11. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. And oh, listen, worship him with a joyful noise because of this. Serve him with gladness because he is the creator. Come before him singing. Why? Because he has done all of this. Listen to, listen to the words of St. Francis Assisi in the hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia, alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, ye clouds that sail in heaven along. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. Thou rising moon, or thou rising morn, in praise rejoice. Ye lights of evening, find a voice. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. If we don't sing praises to our creator, I promise you, creation is praising him with its voice today. last part praise praise the father praise the son and praise the spirit three in one. Oh, praise him oh praise him alleluia alleluia have we learned to worship him here and now as our glorious creator oh god capture our hearts for true worship there's another song another great hymn this is my father's world. 
and to my listening ears all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres this is my father's world the birds their carols raise the morning light the lily white declare their maker's praise do you see that this morning, as the birds are chirping outside, as that sun is beaming down upon this earth, as the wind blows, it's singing praise to our God. Are we called to anything less? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. And dear Christian, this is a prelude to eternal worship of our Creator. Lastly, we worship one shepherd. We come to this last portion in our text in verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Immediately note, we are his people. We belong to him first by choice. His choice, His divine sovereignty and election. Before the foundations of the world were laid, we were His people, His possession. And let that bring comfort to you, Christian. You are no orphan. You are no mistake. You are no castaway. The blood, uh, the, 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 you have belonged to Him all along from eternity's past. That should cheer our hearts. That should, right there, that should put us on our knees singing praise to Him. That I belong to Him. That you belong to Him. We always have. And let, that, and let that bring comfort to you. And equally important is the fact that you belong to Him by covenant. By the blood of the new covenant which He established in Christ. We turn back to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. In verse, tw and, and verse 22 through 24, listen to what it says. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, that covenant that brings you salvation, and to, be, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks, uh, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We look at... Uh, Chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with, everlasting, with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through, the, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. The blood has bought us and the master has laid claim to us. He is our rightful owner. We are his doulos in the Greek. That's bond slave. We belong to him. He rules over us. He is our sovereign Lord. Man, let, let the stinking devil throw whatever he wants at. I don't belong to him anymore. Why be afraid of him? I don't belong to him anymore. He has no claim on me. My sovereign God has claim on me. My Lord has claim on me. What can the, what can the devil do to me here in this life? I have eternal life. Let him do what he will. That is more than enough to beckon us to begin to worship him here and now. We belong to him. He's a good Good Father. And we see how good a Father He is when we understand that He is the great shepherd of His sheep. The second part of our text is, and the sheep of His pasture. Again, we got to pause. We got to go back to what does Scripture say? Psalm 23 1. Oh, listen, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know the rest of it. Oh, just let it flow out. That's our, that's our great shepherd taking care of us, meeting our every need. 
Psalm 28, verse 9, O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Psalm 80, verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Micah chapter 5, verse 4, And he shall stand, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the, and, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and then he shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and then here's a beautiful picture Christ our great shepherd John 10 verses 11 and 14 I am the good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep I am the good shepherd I know my own, and my own know me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Lastly, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21, Now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Did you come in here this morning? Expecting to come into the presence of the great shepherd and worship him? I'll ask the same question I asked last week. Where was your heart when you walked in to this place? Were you prepared to worship, to make a joyful noise? Were you prepared to serve joyfully? Were you prepared to come in joyfully singing the worship of our God? Did you come this morning expecting to meet with your great shepherd in the act of true worship? How precious this relationship between the good shepherd and the sheep is. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, Jesus, the good shepherd, will not travel at such a rate as to overdrive the lambs. He has, a t he has tender consideration for the poor and needy. Kings usually look to the interests of the great and the rich, but the kingdom of our great shepherd, he cares more for the poor. The weaklings and the sickly of the flock are a special object of the Savior's care. You think, dear heart, that you are forgotten because of your nothingness and weakness and poverty? This is the very reason you are remembered. You belong to that great shepherd. You and I, you and I were once that sheep that wandered away. You and I were that sheep that was a rogue that was brought into the flock and tamed to the glory of God. You and I were that one sheep that was constantly rebelling in word, deed, and thought and had to be disciplined and brought into obedience of the shepherd. You and I have at times been that one sheep that was sick, near death, and needed healing. You and I were once that sheep that was cast on his back, unable to turn over and get on his feet. But our shepherd stepped in. I know he gathers us up in his arms and he's placed us close to his bosom and he's carried us home. He has called us by name and we ran to the sound of his voice and even now he leads us in and out. How do we not worship this shepherd with all of our with all the praise and honor and glory? that he deserves. But see, there's a danger. There's a great danger in John chapter 10. There's a danger present that we may follow another shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by, by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 8, 
all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Verse 10, the thief comes to only steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, might, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verses 12 and 13, he who is a hired hand and not the shepherd who does not know the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. May it never be so of us. We have a shepherd that stands close to us and leads us. We look at the, the hymn. King of love, the king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Where streams of living water flow, my ransomed soul he leadeth, and where the verdant pasture grows with food celestial feedeth. Perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid and home rejoicing brought me in death's dark veil i fear i fear no ill with thee dear lord beside me thy rod and staff my comfort still thy cross before to guide me and so through all the length of days thy goodness faileth never good shepherd may i sing thy praise within thy house forever are you worshiping in this prelude the one true God? Are you worshiping the triune God? Are you worshiping him based on all his attributes that none other can compare to? Are you worshiping the creator, the one who made you, and the one who even today most graciously and mercifully allows you to sit there in the pew as you worship your shepherd Christ the Lord the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world this and only this will be true worship today tomorrow and into eternity let's pray Father I just ask that you open our hearts Turn our hearts to you. Let your spirit move upon us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.